Welcome to the Art School Podcast. I'm Ken Goshen. In this episode, I have the pleasure of talking to the brilliant painter, Clinton Hobart. Clinton is a fine artist and a licensed Disney fine artist. He uses a wide variety of subjects in his practice, from the classical fruit and eggshells to the contemporary Mickey Mouse and Doritos. His Disney paintings are technically still lives because he paints them from physical objects. When the object he wants to paint aren't available, he often builds elaborate sets to work from, and those are a real delight. He has been featured on NBC News, Fox News, The CW, ABC News, and American Artist Magazine. This podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. You could become a supporter too by going to patreon.com slash Ken Goshen. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it highly and subscribe wherever you're listening, especially on Apple Podcasts, as they weigh reviews very heavily. So every five-star review helps this podcast reach more people. Thanks in advance. And now enjoy my conversation with Clinton Hobart. Clinton, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So I think, uh, you know, the best way to get started is maybe tell the, the listeners who don't know you yet, kind of your art background, how did you decide you wanted to be an artist, and the route that it took you through in terms of your education, things like that. Um, let's see how I did. I didn't necessarily choose to be an artist. I would say, I would say it chose me. Uh, nobody handed me a list, uh, when I was like five and said, which one of these would you like? Cause I probably would have picked baseball player or lead singer in a rock band, maybe stand up comedian art would probably not even been in the top 10. Uh, I was just absolutely terrible at everything else. So, uh, by process of elimination, this is it. <laughs> well, I, I, I must say that, you know, it's pretty common to hear artists say that art chose them, but to, to, well, to put it in the way that you were terrible at everything else sounds a little strange. So how did you, let's just say it this way, what was the indication that this is something that you're really good at that's worth pursuing? When did you first start seeing signs that said, okay, here's something that I'm not terrible at. Let's kind of keep on pulling on that rope. I'll let you, I'll let you know when, when I discover that I'm good enough, uh, at this, uh, that, that hasn't happened yet. Um, the, the, the only way that I can put it is, um, I just can't stop mm. painting. Uh, when I have five minutes and I'm painting, it just seems to be what I keep coming back to. And in fact, um, it, I can't even paint well of things I don't want to. Yeah, every once in a while, I don't, um, I'm sure, I think everybody has gotten a commission that we should have turned down and didn't. Uh, <laughs> and, and they're just absolute disasters to the point now where it's like, if I know, I'm like, I don't want to paint this. Uh, I just say, no, I, go, you got to go find. I'm sorry, I can't. Your kitten is adorable, but you're going to have to find somebody else to paint the cat because I can't do it. Was it a cat? Was it really a cat? Uh No, it wasn't. It was, um, there's been so many, um, in, in all honesty, but one of them was uh, a Brooklyn bridge painting that uh, years ago that I really wanted to paint. And by the time the guy got done describing what he wanted, my vision had been so far away that I just went, I, he, you know, he wanted it at like night and he wanted all shadows with bright. And I'm like, that's a giant photo that you saw in Ikea. Like, I'm not painting that go buy the photo. <laughs> so. that's 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 uh well that's definitely familiar but did you end up having to do the commission or was it just like that's where we cut it uh no I'll, i'm i mean all right i'll be honest because yeah. that's my thing i'm honest uh i bought the photo that he wanted the one at ikea off of like one of those photo buying sites i had a professional blow it up to the size he wanted. We had it glossed and framed. And when the job got done, I tacked on 200 bucks for my time. 
Nice. <laughs> Great. So you, <laughs> you ended up, you ended up being a facilitator of like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's all. And I really wanted to make the painting, but I'm like, all right, here, just, this is what you read. And he was thrilled. You know, it, it's funny because it's, he's like, that's exactly what I wanted. And I was just like, yeah, I, I know. Good. I think you, you found a, re- a pretty good way to get away with it. Now I want to kind of, <laughs> I want to kind of circle back. Uh, maybe this is going to be a good point to, to touch on because you, you said something like you don't really know yet about whether or not you're good enough. So how about I start by laying on some praise? Because the reason that I'm such a big fan of your work, I think you have something super special going on that I intuitively relate to. Uh, I think the way that you treat your still life subjects, it's very like anthropomorphic. It feels like these pears or these apples, these prunes, whatever it is you put on the table like you treat them as if they're figures, which I found to be fascinating. And I, it's something that I also try to incorporate into my work. Like whenever I see a still life, what really compels me to start painting it, and I don't know if you relate to that, but it's the moment where I start to see it as something that it isn't necessarily. Like once I start, for example, I do it a lot with my breads. Like I would look at a bread and as soon as it starts to look like a landscape, then I really know I have something here. And I see it in every one of your paintings. And I don't know if you get that a lot or if this sounds strange to you, but for uh, it's, me, it's, it's something very different. And in fact, the opposite is the fact that you're one of the few people that actually picked up on it. And I do see it in your work too, by the way. Like, I feel like your breads are, they're, they're pers- they've got personality. Like they're, I definitely, it's one of the things I like about your work. You've got the same thing going on, but um, it's actually not only deliberate, it was the entire uh, long story short uh, in about uh, 2003 or four, um, we hit a mild recession and I was hiring a lot of models and I was doing for- portraits and figures. And, a teacher of mine, Daniel Green, had suggested that in my downtime, I should practice on still life because still life was a great way to learn how to paint. And is his words, apples are cheaper than girls. And uh, as it turns out, they are. Um, and so I got and, and I started I bought some apples and I'm looking at these apples and and I was just bored to tears. And I, I, I'm all I really have always, to be honest, I really have hated still life my entire. I always hated it. It was it's boring. It's, it's stuff on a table. Why do I? OK, you put grapes next to a vase, next to a dagger, next to a dead fish. Why do I care about this? It's boring. Um, and so I was always a big fan of animation and I had wanted to work for Disney when I was, I wanted to be an illustrator. I had no desire to be a fine artist. And I just looking at these apples and I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, what if I treated these apples? Like it was the Roadrunner and the coyote, you know, like the apples are in the still life, but they're going to punch out and get up off the table and walk out of the painting when this thing is over. And I thought, well, I'll make characters out of them. And so every single one of my paintings is a portrait of actors pretending to be in a still life and they're going to get up and leave when it's over. Um, And to the point where I put ladders in some of them, like little wooden ladders so that they can leave. Um, And I keep this all to myself because, you know, like 90% of people that buy my work, they're, they're not getting it because they see that. They're just like, oh, pretty apple. And, and then they want to buy it. So it's sort of an inside joke and you happen to pick up on it. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> that, I'm happy that I did because I was, I was wondering if when I bring it up, you're going to say something along the lines of like, what do you mean? They're not, uh, they're not figures at all. They're just apples. And then I'd be like trying to convince you why I see it in your work. But I think now that you admit to it, we can, we can touch on something even more interesting How do you think you're doing that? Because at the end of the day, when we think about what painting is, you know, mechanically, it's just you're mixing some colors on your palette, you're putting them on a surface, you're doing so, of course, in a very sophisticated way with a lot of attention to detail and attention to shapes. But why is it that when I look at your pear or your pumpkins, I feel like they're just about to like make a joke and then run off the canvas and and I don't feel that way in other people's work. Do you, can you actually pinpoint what you're doing technically to evoke that? You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. 
Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Um, the only thing I can say is that I'm thinking about it when I'm painting. Hmm. Um, and I probably have read more books on acting than I have, um, any other, I mean, I've, uh, I haven't read an art book in a long time, but there was a time when I had read all of them. Uh, I would say up until about 2000, 2000 was really when I, when I was in art school, um, 1995 to 2000, that next five years I had read at that time, I'd read almost every art book in publication. So it's not like I didn't read them. I, I read all of them. Uh, in fact, I, when I was teaching at Scottsdale Art School, um, I used to have uh, a challenge that if you could bring in an art book, I hadn't read, I gave you a, a free drawing. Uh, and I think there was one. Uh, and then when, when, um, self-publishing, uh, became popular, I had to stop doing it because now like there's, 10 times the amount of art books on the market than there was 20 years ago. So now I just, I couldn't keep up. Um, but I read, but in reading all the art books, my favorite, uh, my favorite art book, and I'm not afraid to share this. My favorite art book is a book called on acting by Sandy, uh, Sanford Meisner, uh, in, in the industry. It was called, I don't know him personally. I can't call him Sandy, but he was known as Sandy, uh, in the industry. Uh, and it's, it's just a book on how to be a great anything. And it's sort of about, you know, one of the lines in the book that I love is, you know, you walk up the same flight of stairs every single day, but if, if every single day you, you pretend it's the first time you've walked up that you'll see things you never saw before. So I could paint an apple, but I try to always look at that apple with fresh eyes. Mm. Um, every single time I sit down to paint and then I, you've seen paintings of apples. You've seen still lives of apples. One of the things that drives me nuts is I see so many artists paint a bowl of apples and it's six out of seven to 10 apples, and it's all the same apple. And it drives me nuts because if apples are as different as people, you can, if I do a painting of 12 apples, I want not only 12 different apples, I want the, the red delicious that has a stripe on it that separates itself from every other red delicious in the bin. Uh, and so I'm looking for all the unique uh, fruits, even within that specific fruit genre. Um, and maybe that, that contributes to it too, is I'm looking for things that are different, not the same. Mm, I think that's, I think you totally are touching on something there because it really is in terms of our, our experience walking around the world and, and encountering different characters. I think intuitively the way that we catalog it is, oh, what makes that character special is whatever the way that he stands, what makes her special is whatever, her hair shape and these things. And, and so if you are looking at a bowl of apples and what you're trying to identify is what makes each apple unique, it's definitely the first stage towards making it into a, a personality, a character and, and, and something that is, um, I feel like that's very different from how I work. Like, for example, if, I, if, we, if we were to take it back to, to the way that I treat uh, specifically my, my bread paintings. Like if I'm looking at a bread and, and it reminds me of a mountain and I want it to look like a mountain, then I would be much more cerebral about it. I would think, okay, in a mountain, if it's far away, I'm going to see far less uh, value variation, right? Because as something goes farther and farther away, oh, I lost your visual there. Oh, and oh there it goes. And so if something is farther and farther away, we're usually able to pick up uh, far less contrast. So I would deliberately like reduce the dark values, uh, reduce the contrast, I mean, meaning picking up the dark values and making sure that I'm actually uh, adding an illusion of, of aerial perspective, just peppering a little bit of that. So do you catch yourself saying like, I have I have a mission here. Like I want this apple to look like an individual apple. Like this pumpkin needs to make a statement. And then do you find yourself stressing specific moments in the painting such that, you know, they add even more character? Are you, are you aware of doing it? Or is it something that is just kind of in the back and, you know, that algorithm just takes care of it? 
It's, it's innate. It's, it's not innate. It's, it's learned and it's, but it wasn't learned in still life. It was learned in figure drawing. And my background in figure drawing was a class at the school of visual arts called high focus drawing with James McMullen. And McMullen used to always say to push the pose Mm -hmm. that if someone is leaning uh, over that if you're going to make a mistake, you're better off having your drawing where the model is leaning too far than too straight. And so it was always the idea that we're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. But if you're going to make a mistake, make the more interesting mistake. Don't make a boring mistake. Don't straighten or stiffen. Make it fall over. Make it exaggerated. Push it to the point of of often, I'm adding this to it, but I'd rather push it to ridiculousness than be boring. Uh, And so what we're talking about with still life often happens in the grocery store. Uh, where if I'm looking through that bin of apples and I see an apple that's, you know, clearly going to be at an angle or got a big bump on it or, you know, I, I you know, if I see something and, and think oh, instantly Quasimodo, you know, this apple's got a big hump on its back or uh, a pumpkin that I had that had a huge slant on it. And those are the things that I see in the store. And I think to myself, I, I can push that. I can exaggerate that a little bit more and make that even more interesting. And I think that a lot of the times people have a tendency um, especially right now to shy away. Uh, I think that most of the people will, will see the apple that looks like Quasimodo and put it back because it doesn't look like all the other apples. Uh, and I think that, uh, there's a percentage of people that, that, you know, where have they, they've looked at my work and they've been like, but that's not a perfect apple. I wouldn't have picked that apple. Uh, and I think to myself, I know. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's kind of amazing. Uh, I love how you're relating it to the, to the way that people, as you, as you called it, push the pose. So basically it's as soon as you're identifying that apple as having some kind of inherent gesture, if you're pushing that, then it, it really starts to, it starts to come alive. Cause when I, when I saw your work for the first time in person, now that it's here in New York, I was looking at those pairs and to me, it really looks like they, they're kind of like dancing or they're having a little huddle or they're, they're getting ready to, to play some game of cards. And I felt like it's a little bit incredible that this is able to like that, that there is some kind of mechanic that you're kind of continuously hitting on that makes this happen every single time. So I feel like it's, it's really great to hear that, you know, there's, I, I could, how to play, how to frame it. I think that people who are interested in trying to make work that also has the same effect would benefit greatly from understanding what the underlying principles are that causes a pair to look like, you know, this pair could, could, could dance or could speak. And so I think you, you put it really beautifully. Uh, do you feel like, I know you work for Disney, so maybe before I ask that, do you want to do you wanna share with us the extent to which, like, what, what, what kind of work do you do? Do you illustrate for them? No, actually, I've never worked for Disney. Um, oh, you're never? What? Okay. No, no. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's just simply a licensing agreement. Uh, and so what it is is that uh, in 2013, I did a series of paintings that were released by Disney, by, uh, by Disney Fine Art, which is a company that's called, uh, which is a separate division. This is called Disney Fine Art. And they released uh, three paintings as limited edition prints which makes you an officially licensed Disney fine artist, but you're not an employee. You just made Disney uh, paintings with permission. Mm. And so, but it's amazing how uh, it does change. I remember when it first happened, you know, we've all walked into that gallery with uh, our portfolios under our arms and you can literally watch the staff run for the back. Like uh, I'll be over. Yeah. I've got the phones ringing. I, and once you release paintings from Disney, when you walk into an art gallery, people are like, Oh, hi. Uh, and so the attitude really changes, um, <laughs> you know, like, Oh, you're not running for the back room anymore. Wow. Um, and, you know, they still run for the back room occasionally. So I'm not going to lie. They're, they're still that, uh, they smell an artist a mile away and they take off. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like there's, well, there's so much interesting stuff to touch on there. But just specifically about what you just said, I'm, I'm sure that all of us can really relate. But on the other hand, I'm also very sympathetic uh, towards the people who are basically the front end person at the gallery, usually an intern, you know, maybe in art school, just kind of 
having no power and no say about anything that's going on in the gallery. So it, it looks like the model of the relationship between the gallery and the artists is, is something that's fundamentally dysfunctional, at least in, in, in my view. Do you have that kind of feeling? Um, the relationship between the gallery and the artist is dysfunctional. Um, yes. And I think that's partially because art gallery owners and artists are dysfunctional uh, for the most part. Uh, you know, we're not in a field full of mentally stable people uh, on either end. It just, you know, if you've got issues, you're attracted to art. That's, you know, I've been in this long enough to know if you're damaged goods, art is the place for you. Um, and so, you know, we've all got issues to begin with. Uh, what, what kills me is, uh, I don't know what the best word would, uh, I don't know if you want to call it unfound, um, just, just, uh, undue snobbery, I think would be the, the best word for it, where, you know, there's this attitude of, I pay the rent in this building and I have all these paintings and therefore I'm important. And it's just like, no, you're not. (laughs) None of us are all that important. There's a million artists running around. There's a lot of buildings. Anybody with money can rent one. So get off your high horse. Uh, and so that's really what uh, I, I took five years. Uh, I got into the whole Comic-Con thing. I started doing superheroes and uh, I was still painting still lifes. But I, I just said, you know what? I'm tired of having doors slammed in my face uh, by people who don't know me, who aren't even going to give me the time of day because I'm not, you know, I'm not known or I'm not in their circle or I'm not this or I'm not that. And, and yeah, and you know, you know now it's changing a bit. Um, the, the people at Sugarlift, uh, for example, were so nice. Uh, and really, I'm going to actually call them out and, and say that, you know, they broke. I never said this to him uh, directly, but all, every time I emailed them, I kept thinking to myself, you're just too nice to be a gallery owner. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, and so I, it's nice to see that there are people who are kind of onto this and breaking that mold, um, you know, because yeah, for, for years, uh, you know, you'd walk in a gallery and it's just like, yeah, all right, you don't want to talk to me. I don't want to talk to you either. Um, so, uh, and that's changing, which is nice. Yeah. I feel like you're, you're onto something that I, that I also feel. So if we're calling him out by name, we're talking about Wright Harvey. He's, uh, he, uh, he runs Sugarlift Gallery and He's just a really great guy. And I think one day I should probably also have him on the podcast uh, in order to talk about the gallery model, what he hopes to change. And, and I, I totally agree with you because, you know, it's, it's as you describe, you know, uh, walking into a gallery with a painting or two in, in your bag. And then as soon, <laughs> as soon as you just try to take it out and, and, show, and show the person there, they're like, oh man, just another artist. And the way that they look at it is... I don't know. I, to me, it always felt like something fundamentally was, was wrong because it's like they, the gallery meaning, uh, functioned sort of like a barrier between an artist and being able to find an audience. And back before there was social media and before artists could kind of take their destiny into their own hands and, and, and have more control over who sees their art and how, the gallerists were, were a monopoly of, on that. You know, you were a studio animal, you did your own paintings. And then if you wanted anybody to see them, uh, you kind of had to go through this bottleneck. And much like any monopoly, it leads to very predatory behavior. But I think what changed right now is the fact that artists, if they're willing to put, the, to put in the time to, to promote their own work and to make sure that they are getting to the audience that they're looking for independently it very it, it totally changed the field of art promotion and i feel like galleries haven't picked up they haven't picked up on this difference that they no longer hold the same grip on power as they used to and what used to be you know pretty um pretty understandable snobbery has now become undue snobbery because they no longer you know you can go to comic-con you can go to comic-con you can you can go on instagram you can do that stuff yourself and i think that is leading towards a change in artists uh perspective on galleries which i'm feeling myself i don't know if you share that but i kind of say i don't 
I don't necessarily want to deal with that. Like if that's, if that's how it's going to feel, then I'll just take care of business myself. Does that sound like something that you relate to? Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly did that. I mean, look, social media has helped tremendously where, you know, right now in the last two years, I think 90% of my sales have come off of Instagram or Facebook. Um, you know, there's been a few galleries. I'm still in a, in a great gallery in Virginia in Warrenton, Virginia called Berkeley gallery. And, and they're fantastic to me. So it hasn't been hundred percent bad experiences with galleries. I've had my good experiences, but, um, the undue snobbery is definitely um, something that, that, that has just bothered me for, for years because, and that's new. I really believe that that's new, you know, where I met someone who, oh God, it's going to be going back about five years. He said to me, I really love your work, but I only buy, you know what? I'm not going to mention the gallery's name. It was a very famous gallery that was in New York and now is in LA, which just, you know, basically there's only one. So I know, I, I know, uh, I know what like, you're talking about. <laughs> if you don't want to call it out, we was, don't have to. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're not going to mention it. We don't need to mention it. That, everyone knows right now just from that. Um, but he was like, well, I only buy from them. And I'm like, oh, oh, well, that's like saying I only buy my socks in, in Walmart. But these, these socks over here, they're really comfortable. But I'm not, you're an idiot. Um, and so, you know, uh, why would you say that? But, and that's brand new where this, this guy felt that that gallery was so important. He would only buy, and it's just, you know, I, I remember thinking to myself, well, what gallery did, did Van Gogh uh, show in? Do you, do you remember? Do you know what gallery Van Gogh showed in? No idea. How about Rembrandt? Remember what gallery Rembrandt showed in? Probably not. You remember what? No. no. How about Sargent? You know, you remember the gallery that represented John Singer Sargent when he was alive, don't you? No. Think about it. You can't name one gallery that represented dead people because frankly nobody cares <laughs> you yeah. remember the artist not the gallery so you know the second your work comes off the wall uh and and so yeah the undue snobbery you know what it, look i and i have no i i know i'm not going to be in the in the category of the people that i just named so i'm i my snobbery is off the table but i just wish everybody would just be a lot more normal just chill out calm down and be a decent person <laughs> yeah, to me, it sounds almost like there is some kind of contradiction uh, in, in the art market because people buy art for two reasons. And sometimes these things are in conflict. They buy art because they love it and it makes their life better and they want to add it to their homes such that their lives are improved by it. And then the other reason is they want to buy it because it's a good investment and that later on they can if they choose to sell it for slightly more or a lot more than what they bought for uh, and make a killing so they can live with a work that they either like or they hate and then they can put it in the storage and then they can sell it again and actually make a profit and i feel like what happened with with galleries is that uh collectors have kind of exported the responsibility of deciding what art is going to continuously gain value uh, and this this has to do with the reputation of the gallery. So, for example, if those who will not be named the gallery that you that you mentioned, they're probably acting as some kind of barrier to entry. And people who buy from them know that if in 10 years they want to sell that work, it's most likely still going to be you know commercially viable. While if they just trust their instinct of, oh, my God, I really love these paintings. I want them on my whatever on my wall here and there. Uh, then they don't actually get that guarantee that if they want to resell that work, it's going gonna, it's gonna to gain uh, in profit, you know, that they're going to make money from it. So I think a lot of the biggest collectors have, have the latter motivation, like they're buying art as an investor. Uh, and it just so happens to also be beautiful objects. But I think, I suspect that in the days in the days of Rembrandt and in, in the days of Van Gogh, maybe people were still old school and they were buying work and not really thinking about what's going to happen if I try to sell that work. They bought that work because they want to own it because they're in love with the piece itself and they want to add it to their life. Yes, and, and you've touched on like three different things. And I, again, I, I think that the only reason to buy art is because you love it. Uh, you know, the whole idea of buying it as an investment is um that's a popularity contest that's all that is it has nothing you know uh woody allen once famously said that tradition is the illusion of permanence and i've always felt that art materials are the illusion of permanent permanence so, oh are those 
pigments? Uh, is, is that an acid-free paper? Is that, you know, and everybody's worried. And, and one of the things that I, I don't ever worry about any of that stuff. Uh, I, I don't, I couldn't care less. I mean, I use the, the materials that, that are available. Oh, I lost you again. Hang on. I use the materials that are available, but I'm not, I'm not so worried. I'm not grinding my own pigments, mostly because I never met a pianist that built his own piano. Um, it, it's, it's, it's silly, you know, I'm not going to grind my own pigments. Um, but, but these, this illusion of permanence that everybody's worried about, um, is, is the idea that if I buy this, it's going to go up in value. Well, if that's really what you're worried about, then you should be focusing on your own popularity because that's the only thing that's going to make your work go up in value is becoming more popular. People are buying Jackson Pollocks and Roush and Burbs and those were made with house paint and they're falling apart, but they're popular. Uh, and so they're selling for a lot of money. Data symbols. And I think that's, that's what? Data symbols. If you walk into yeah, a house and, and they have a Rauschenberg, oh, you're automatically like, whoa, who's the big shot, yeah. you know? Sorry, I cut you off. No, 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 you're fine. Yeah, it's just that. And, and again, I mean, it, you know, look at what happens when one actor buys a painting sort of, and it's publicized, you know, all you need is one, you know, big name, George Clooney buys a painting, you know, such and such buys this painting. I can't tell you, I, I had, uh, I was at a show, I was at a Comic-Con and Michael Rooker from Guardians of the Galaxy bought a painting from me. And like my sales after that, everybody was flocking over to the table to buy something because they heard that he had bought a painting from me. That's, uh, well, I think, it does, it does make perfect sense, but it's, it's also unfortunate. And I think, you know, on the topic, on the topic of, of archival materials, I'm, I'm kind of with you, and I'm, I'm, but I think I'm with you for a different reason. I tend to enjoy how paintings that are painted more or less correctly decay. You know, I don't know if you... I really love looking at old paintings and seeing the cracks, uh, it makes the painting to me feel more true to life. So you can see that this this painting is now old and it 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 adds value to the fact that, okay, so I'm seeing it this way, the way that it is right now. And probably people 200 years ago saw it a little bit differently. So who's to say that what they saw is the more beautiful version of, of the painting? I'm kind of like, you know, if you if you use the materials that are going to make your painting last more or less 300 years should probably be enough, especially today in the age of photography, where both you and I are, you know, we're taking pictures of our work. So that should kind of be more than enough, um, at least in my, in my opinion. And if a painting ends up, you know, looking different after 150 years, well, that, that's pretty cool. The painting is also a living thing and it, it also changes through time and i i actually find it charming there was one titian copy that i was working on when i was oh gosh so long ago it's like seven or eight years ago uh and it was when i was still in school and i was really struggling to mix a color that i was seeing and I, there was like no way that i could reach it on the palette i was mixing it more here more here more there pulling it in all these different directions and it's just like this color is not a color like there's no way to mix it and I was going crazy over it, being the obsessive person that I am. And my teacher, who is far older and far wiser, was just saying, like, listen, this is, he didn't mix this color. This is clearly something that has faded over time in a way that only time can do. He says, sometimes time is the best painter, you know? And, I'm, and that really got me thinking, like, today, for example, when I look at paintings by by the old masters and there's something very somber very quiet very restrained in there and i'm I'm wondering to what extent is this aesthetic that i'm so in love with a product of some pigments fading away and and looking way more quiet and maybe when they were painted they were way more saturated and way more reminiscent of, of the stuff that we see today so I'm all for it. Let, let, let father time paint away on my work personally. Cause I, I think there's a lot to be gained from it. I've, um, I've actually never given that thoughtful just now. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I never thought about like what my paintings are going to look like in, in a hundred years or 50 years or, uh, I just never thought about that. Um, well, hmm. hope, hope, hopefully, hopefully people will enjoy them. I, I tend to think that they will. 
Um, I feel like the, pa- the paintings that get older almost add a sense of maturity to the artist because it, you know, it adds more grays to it. The color becomes a little bit more cracked and it, it just feels, I don't know, I feel like it's going to feel better, but maybe, maybe that's just a, maybe just a personal bias. So I, I wanted to ask, So you went through the process of getting licensed and, and so now you're able to paint Disney characters. Why do you want to do it? What's, what is it about those Disney characters that you find compelling? Well, actually, my stuff is, is, is still still life. So if you look at the Disney releases that I have, I'm not doing character. Uh, what I did was I did a Beauty and the Beast painting, which was a tea set. That was my grandmother had purchased uh, in like the early 90s, I believe, when, the, when Beauty and the Beast came out. And so I took the tea set and I put that in a painting. And then I took a regular alarm clock and a drapery and a rose and a candlestick. Uh, and so I took all the elements from Beauty and the Beast, but they weren't any of the characters in Beauty and the Beast. It was just a regular still life that I would normally paint, only it was based on Beauty. Uh, The, the movie and then I had done some statues that someone had given to me uh, and even the character stuff that I've done um, is are their Disney big fig statues that were also released in the 90s uh, cold pressed porcelain I think they are called um, but they're, they're they're statues and so everything that I've done for Disney is still a still life uh, hmm. even though uh, it's just a Disney theme still life and so it, it still fits with the, the general corpus of my work Interesting. And so why was it necessary? Pardon me if this just goes legal, but why was it necessary to get licensed to do that? Is that otherwise a problematic adventure? Uh, ego. ego. Gigantic, <laughs> gigantic ego. Uh, and no, when you're doing still life, there, there was no reason for me to go and get uh, Disney's permission to make stuff. I could have made still life because there was no Disney characters in there. Uh, I could have done it and sell and sold it. But when I was younger, I had wanted to work for Disney. That's all I wanted. I went to art school wanting to be Norman Rockwell or work in consumer products or wear a shirt. To me, fine art meant you had to have uh, a blue mohawk and a nose ring with a chain that went to your ear and your wallet and black leather. And I wanted nothing to do with any of those people um, when I was in art school, uh, you know, because they were they were falling asleep in the halls. Uh, you know, I went to SBA in, in the 90s and, you know, there was still, you know, rumors of Keith Haring being around and, and things like that. So I wanted nothing to do with it. I loved, uh, I didn't even like fine. My favorite uh, artists back then were, were Roman Rockwell and J.C. Line, J.C. Leindecker, first and foremost, and the Andrew Loomis books and, and Walt Otto and, and, and all, you know, Howard Chandler Christie, Howard Pyle, you know, on and on and on. The, the classic 100, uh, il, you know, illustrators book was, was what I loved. That's what I was attracted to. And so, so uh, all, all that's what I wanted. To the, to the people who aren't familiar with the names, what, what, The common thing here is that when I was studying at Parsons, these figures were being taught under the history of illustration class, not history of fine arts. So they're, I think, today at least considered by the fine arts community as more of the illustrator kind than the fine art kind, which is also a pretty modern convention to separate the two because back in the days of da vinci like what was da vinci like he called his drawings cartoons rafael called his drawings cartoons so this distinction between fine artist and illustrator i i think is a modern 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 and and, and to some extent arbitrary distinction that back in the day wasn't so prominent Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, we, we all know that it, 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 the, the terms basically have nothing to do with anything except how you're paid. Um, and, and I think that a lot of terms, a lot of the things that we believe in the fine art world came from, from a lot of people that were unsuccessful. Um, because the successful people, they didn't care. If you were making, as the, if you were making a living a good living as an illustrator, um, you didn't care what the world thought of you. you. You went home to your wife and your kids and your, your house and your car, and you just kind of chuckled if you got insulted by. Uh, and then the, the fine artists that were doing well, uh, you know, they weren't paying attention. So it's, the, the angry ones are always the ones who aren't successful. Um, you know, I very, very seldom have been insulted by someone who was doing great. 
I have, uh, let me play devil's advocate here because I, I, I admit, and you know, if my students are listening, they're going to know that I sometimes draw the line between painting and illustration in a way that helps me explain something to, to my students. And I'm, I'm wondering if you're going to find my definition offensive or if you're going to disagree and I'll, I'll be happy to, uh, how do you say, to prosecute the case. But what I think is the difference is something along the lines of, and I'm a huge fan of illustration, don't get me wrong. Like I, I also, I wanted to illustrate D&D books when I was young. I was just never really good enough uh, for that kind of uh, imaginative stuff. But what I think is, it's the relationship between the subject and the medium that's different. Like if you're an illustrator at heart, you're using paint as a medium to describe the apple. But if you're an artist at heart, you use the apple as a medium for playing with paint. I feel like it just goes the other way. So when I put a subject in front of me, I kind of, I don't really ask, what can I do to serve that subject? I'm asking, what could the subject do to serve something that's interesting about paint, like where there's going to be textures, where are there going to be really interesting relationships between grays and colorful colors? How am I going to set my format? But it's more like, what can the apple do for painting as opposed to what can paint, you know, do in order to properly describe or create a character of an apple? Does that make sense? Uh, it, it does, but I think you're giving, you might be giving the fine art world too much credit. Uh, also. And that, um, and then it's, look, you know, when I was in art school and, and, and I, maybe I'm wrong, I thought the definition between fine art and illustration was simply that if you got paid before you did the job, you were an illustrator. <laughs> if someone paid you to be, to paint an apple, you're an illustrator. And if you painted the apple and then you hope you're praying that somebody buys the apple, you're a fine artist. Uh, and I really thought the pay was, was the only thing that separated the two because, you know, look, I mean, if the illustrator paints the apple and it looks like an apple and it's great, it's an illustration. But if somebody comes along and takes the apple and then melts crayons onto the canvas and you're looking at it and it's like, wow, that's a, it's a, it's a bunch of melted crayons on a canvas and then they sell it for a million dollars. It's fine art. I, that's the thing that I never, I could never wrap my head around. The guy nails a banana to the wall and, uh, and, and it goes for why. Uh, and so, but then the guy that actually knows how to paint the banana, he's an illustrator. And, and so that, that is the one argument over the years that is just, if you really want to get my blood boiling, you know, you, you, you know, I can't, the day, the day that that thing happened, I remember, and if you, I, I painted it. I took the banana and I taped it to a canvas and I, and I painted it with the attitude of like, you know, now it's art, um, you know, cause now it's a painting now, now it's actually something you can buy. Um, and so, yeah, I get, I get mad at that difference between where it's like, Oh, I'm an illustrator because I know how to paint. Uh, what? But where'd no, that I come think from? Not, not that I'm against getting our blood, blood boil and, and also to kind of rail against all the, all the crimes that conceptual art has committed against culture. We can definitely get there, but I'm talking more, more along the lines of, you know, between, between two people whose work is relatively realistic, relatively figurative, uh, and basically two people that if you were to put their work in a gallery, they, they would look like they're from the same school of painting. I think the, the spectrum between illustration and fine arts also exists there because there could be a very big difference between, and, and, and this kind of goes back to what you were thinking about when you were saying that you're not necessarily doing it um, consciously, that you're animating those, those apples or those lemons and bringing them to life. But to me, like, let's say, for example, we're both coming up with a still life composition. And then I'm thinking, I need a bit of, I need a bit of yellow there on the right side. So I go to the grocery stores and I, I buy a lemon I don't care about the lemon per se. It just needs to be a spot of yellow to balance out my frame. To me, that's a fine art thinking here. Like the lemon serves this idea of the painting working while an illustrator would look at the lemon and say, oh, what a, what a character. Like I, I'm going to have to capture that character so that I can, you know, communicate that to other people so that they can see the lemons as I see the lemons. You know, I have this kind of distinction, for example, when I, when I have students 
do something and they, I wouldn't say fall into, but maybe, maybe fall into because I think the illustration drive is a more natural drive to us as people. Like, for example, the cave paintings are kind of illustrations. It's, oh, we saw the bison. Let's communicate the bison to other people. To me, that's the truer kind of, of representational art. It's more of the illustration tradition. But I try to tell people, like, let's not think about the lemon as a lemon for now. Let's think about it as, well, do we really want that yellow spot in that moment on the canvas to look so bright or does it tip the whole thing out of balance? And to try to separate yourself from somebody who's necessarily describing what's there to somebody who's busy with the task of organizing colors and paints on a two-dimensional surface such that it becomes a visual magnet and people would want to look at it. I don't know if that's just <laughs> from your face. I gather that that makes very little sense to you. Maybe, maybe. No, no, no. I'm, I'm trying, my take to, on I'm it. trying to, I'm, no, no, no. I, I like what you're saying. I do. I like what you're saying. And you can't offend me. We're just talking. Um, <laughs> but what I, what I think I'm hearing is that an illustrator painting an apple is looking at the apple and saying, that's an apple. I want to convey to everyone looking at my illustration that it's an apple. And a fine artist painting an apple is thinking only of themselves. In a way, or, or, or if we were to make it less ego-driven, I would say that at least when I think about it, I think that it's me and the Apple collaborating to create something larger than both of us. Like the painting, yes. the painting yes. is, is, I couldn't do the painting without the Apple, but the Apple couldn't have produced the painting without me because that would just be a photograph, right? So now it's a negotiation between what the Apple has actually done and and... And what I plan to do by using the apple. Like, I don't know if you know the work of uh, British painter Yuan Yuglo. Yeah, it sounds familiar. Okay. It's, it's, you can really see how he, when he looks at these fruits, it's just, he's just almost taking advantage of them. It's like, these are just moments of like this banana. Here it goes very colorful. Then here it goes very gray. Then here it shifts to brown. And he uses that rhythm almost like an abstract painter designing a composition. So they're like, they're platforms for him to have fun with color and to be very rigorous about design. And I think that if we were to give the fine arts world credit where it doesn't commit sins against you know, culture, I think that's the good that it has to offer, to actually think about this as, as not just I am, it's me and, and, and I'm trying to convince people that there's an apple here on this two-dimensional surface. It's that, you know, the apple on the surface is kind of more than just an apple. It's actually an arrangement of shapes and colors in a very specific rhythm uh, that becomes timeless. I feel like I feel like the, the notion of timeless is is a little bit different than the notion of permanence because timelessness is something that, despite the fact what like the painting itself could be destroyed, but the image that you have of it in your mind is forever. the The, the best way that I have to explain it is like, uh, and I tend to return to this example a lot. So to whomever, whomever heard me say it before, I apologize. But you know, when you walk into the gallery and something from across the room just shines and 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 you immediately know you want to go there and take a look at what's there you don't know if it's an apple or a figure yet but what called you out is this arrangement of colors and shapes on the two-dimensional surface that to me transcends representation then you walk up to it and you either get disappointed or happy but it did that thing that it drew you in and it drew you in with with an abstract arrangement it has nothing to do with what's represented yeah, I, and I, I think you touched on something I should have added earlier, which is I can't make a painting of an apple or a pear without the uh, the item. Uh, and I've I've been complimented and insulted uh, by, by people saying to me, "Oh, that's a portrait. Uh, all you paint are portraits. No matter what you paint, it's a portrait." And at this point in my career, I'm I'm fine with that. I'm perfectly happy to admit, yes, I'm I'm painting portraits uh, to the point even where if uh, if something is rotting uh, and I'm painting it. Um, then the painting stays unfinished. I won't get another apple. And because that would be like working on a portrait and having your model die and then going and hiring another and be like, I'm going to finish this portrait now with somebody else in there. No, I'm so with you. I'm so with you. Oh God. I'm sorry for cutting you off. It's just like, I've been advised to do this by both of my teachers that if like, 
a subject dies, you could just kind of replace it. And I can't bring, never, no. I could Painting never. Painting is done no. all the time. It's done. It's just, it's going to be unfinished. Like, that's how it is. I'm so yeah, on Just board. do another one. If I'm going to buy another app, I'll start another painting. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think that's totally true. And I, I'm, growing, I'm growing conscious of your time. I just want to make sure that we touch on something that we started talking about before. And I want to make sure that we get it on the record. So we started talking about Hockney and tracing. And I'm, I'm really interested. Maybe you can kind of take us through your thoughts on, on, on these issues. Um, you know, well, I mean, it's, it's a long conversation, but, um, first, I mean, I'm dead. I I despise tracing. I despise it. Uh, and that being said, I'm not going to say I've never done it. I think any artist that has had a job to do and struggled long enough as at one point said, all right, let me try tracing this. Uh, it has never worked out well for me. Um, you know, for me, every single time I've tried to trace something, I wound up redrawing it. Um, you know? Uh, that's just the nature of this. But then the thing that we're talking about, about getting the life in there, about capturing a moment in time, about painting a portrait, to me, tracing is the exact opposite of of getting life and energy. To me, the tracing sucks the life and energy out of a work. And so when these guys come along and they say, oh, these old masters couldn't have done that unless they traced, it's just, well, why, why couldn't they just know how to draw? Um, and then there's been articles. There was an article, Scientific American did uh, an article, I think it was December of 2005. I'm not sure. I have to look it up. Anyway, where they did a computer model of the chandelier in the Van Eyck painting that Hockney claimed was uh, traced. And there, there's no evidence that the painting was actually traced. Uh, and then anyone who's worked from life, who's hired a real model, has to look at this, this scenario from these people. And they say, OK, wait a minute, I'm going to build a giant box. I'm going to have a model sit outside the giant box while I'm inside uh, the giant box. And then I'm going to come out and say, do this. I'm going to get back in the box. Then I'm going to come back out. I'm going to move the hand here and then go back in the, instead of what, just learning how to draw. Uh, it, it seems so absurd to me. And then, and then you're taking away, well, look, part of the fun of hiring models is, there's a lot of fun we're not going to get into uh, about hiring models. Um, and, <laughs> but but being inside a giant box is not one of the things that's fun about working from life, uh, you know. And so you're sucking that right out of it. Uh, and, and it just doesn't make doesn't make any sense. Just learn how to draw, uh, you know. And then and, and they, they you see these commercials on Instagram for the camera obscura and the Lucy. Oh, learn how to paint like a master. Well, let's tell you something. Anybody who's seen the end <laughs> results of some of these people's work, you know. And look, there's a hint. Like there's a lot of artists that are successful and they're tracing the crap. And that drives me nuts. Do you? Any art magazine, ninety percent of it is just traced garbage to me. Uh, and I use that's a hyphenated term for me, traced garbage because that's that's how it could you imagine if van gogh had traced or toulouse lautrec or or lucian freud i mean i don't want to if they did trace i don't want to know about it um i could imagine if vermeer traced are you not persuaded by those theories you know i've never been a huge vermeer fan to begin Mm. with they always looked stiff to me uh to begin with and so and they're little uh so you know maybe he did build a giant box you know i know he's the guy they like to say uh, traced, but you know, when, when I'm looking at my list of favorite artists, he's not, uh, he's not even in the top 100, you know, not compared to Toulouse-Lautrec or, 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 or Egon Schiele or, or anybody, uh, Muka or any of the guys that are. Oh, Muka. That's a name you don't hear every day. I love him. Um, yeah. You know, like, yeah, especially the stuff that you, you know, you, you look at the Muka, the sketchbooks alone. Oh my God. Like all the black and white stuff. Oh my God. Phenomenal. So that's really interesting because usually the way this conversation goes is that I am, I'm increasingly convinced that Vermeer did trace and, and did use optical devices and, and all these kinds of lenses. Uh, and I usually use that to make the case that at the end of the day, bottom line, the painted result is what matters. But for you, this is not going to work because if you're not a fan of his, then your argument stays hermetically sealed you know you're 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 if if you don't like the appearance of tracing and you can kind of feel the flavor of that in Vermeer's work then that would make perfect sense to me because my my take on it is that I really don't care 
how people get the results that they get as long as the painting's killer. Now, it's true to say that in my personal experience, 99.9% of traced paintings don't look good. There are very few painters who manage to get away with it, Vermeer being one of them. I think Vermeer, like, I, I totally think that he used these optical devices to, to produce his work, but I think he was wise enough in, 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 the, in the ways of painting, in the ways of drawing, uh, to actually, you know, transcend the, the nasty quality that you get from, from the traced image. But it does take a lot. And there are so many, like, very successful, quote, realistic artists, quote, close quote, that you can, you can so clearly see how these paintings are traced and traced poorly and traced unapologetically and traced in a way that really suggests that painting is a redundant activity. Like, why not use the original source photograph? Like, I don't even understand the point of taking a photograph and reproducing it through really rigorous labor. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to me to be adding any value, not to the image and, and really not to the world. Uh, but the very few painters who manage to trace and make great work, I don't mind. Do, do, you, fi- do you find that distinction worthwhile or for you it's the activity of tracing that's a bummer it's it's not the activity it's the fact that you know to me it's not the point Uh, if you take the word still life still life not still copied photo not traced copied photo still life set up an apple on a table set up a panel paint uh, any a, a canvas and work from the real life so if I'm entering a competition and I've set up some mushrooms, mushrooms die within, oh my, overnight. If you want to paint them, for me, if I want to paint a mushroom painting, I got to get up at like seven o'clock in the morning. I got to put those mushrooms out. I got to set up my canvas. I got to work until as late as humanly possible. And I'm going to take my painting and I'm going to enter it in a competition in the still life category. Somebody else comes along, takes a picture of their mushrooms puts it on a projector, traces the outline of those mushrooms, makes a nice little grid on it and paints it one square at a time over the next four months. And their painting looks identical to those mushrooms. And my painting that I did in one day is in the same category and is up against, and then I lose in the still life category. Now I'm not bitter about this. I don't really enter those competitions anymore, but what I don't consider, I don't consider the traced photograph, I, to me, it's not a still life. It's just a painting of a copied photograph. And, and to me, there should be a separate category for those, you know, like, okay, real still life and you guys over here that are just copying photographs. Uh, and then the other thing is the, the laboriously traced and, 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 and one square at a time with the, you know, it's boring. It's just a, it's a boring process. It's a boring painting, and I know that everybody loves them, and you, if you do that, you're going to sell it for $30,000, but it's not going to be in my house. <laughs> I, yeah, I'd I rather have the guy who did it in one day. The way, the, way that I, the way that I usually think about it is, the way that I explain it is that what makes a painting really attractive for me is the fact that painting is, is essentially, when you think about it, if you, if you don't think about the representational qualities and you just think, okay, it's a board or some canvas with some colorful pigments, you know, rubbed on top of it. It's almost like a, a, a residue or a side product of some kind of dance, some kind of choreography that your hand did. It's almost like if you took a professional dancer, you put their feet in ink and told them to go perform their dance across the stage. A great dancer will most likely create uh, a stage that looks amazing with just these ink markings that are left on the stage. But somebody who tried to trace those dance moves and just go slowly, 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 one step at a time to trace that dance, you would feel that boredom on on the marks that are created on the stage. Like you need to make sure that whatever it is you're doing with your hand is, I don't know what else to call it, but attractive. Like if you're not attentive to the fact that when you're dipping your brush in paint and you're making moves on the canvas, that your hand is actually dancing and it's being recorded in paint and you're not attentive to the kind of moves that your hand is making, which you can, of course, see most 
evidently in, in works of people like Rembrandt or people like Sargent, where actually the brush strokes are, are each very, very significant. That to me is the first thing that disappears when people trace because they're so loyal to trying to catch each and every pixel that the photograph has that their hand becomes a complete slave to it. And it's no longer a kind of record of a, of a vital and, and, and fun to, to partake in movement of the arm, but rather the arm is, is, is subservient to in, in service of a quote, larger image. You know what I mean? It's not, mm. it's no longer the practice of painting. You're, you're turning yourself into a printer and, and I could see it in the strokes. You know, I could look at this image from afar and for a moment feel impressed. But as soon as you go close and you, you notice what hand movements were, were, being, uh, were being used in order to, to create this image, you immediately feel sad to the core of your soul. You're like, oh, no, no, don't do that to your hand. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, in fact, I would, I would ask you, because I don't know this, I always wondered the psychology behind the painters who do that. Is it that the illusion of being good is more important than having something to say? Interesting. Um, I don't know. I think it's the, it's the importance of being able to point to a moment and say that's a thing, right? Because, for example, you would see... Uh, a lot of these these very hyper realistic traced photos are sometimes of very mundane moments, and I think the point is to be able to say here this subway scene that you would otherwise ignore and of which you have a million phones in your iPhones. I think we should stop for a minute and look at that moment. And then there's something in the activity of here. Look, I I slaved over this for for a thousand hours just to paint this Cheeto bag of this guy that's sitting in the subway <laughs> that's supposed to say something about the moment itself, you know? And then people are like, wow, the guy eating Cheetos on the subway is a very significant and spiritual thing to look at. Um, but other than that, I, I don't know. People are People are shocked by the most trivial things. It's almost like you know, some, you, you walk on the street and some street magician can, can pick a coin out of somebody's ear. Immediately you're like, wow, because I don't know how to do that. So there's, there's an ability to trigger that response um, combined with, uh, with the elevation of the mundane moments to the, to the status of, of art that people probably find compelling. But to me, this takes out the humanity out of the painting in a way that I find irreconcilable. All right. Yeah, I think the personality out of it too. I think, I think I don't want to take up too much of your time. Do you have a few more minutes just so that we can? I end do. I, yeah. So, you know, just okay. Painting. Good. I wanted to, cause I always like to, to try to finish on a, on, on a positive note. So I want to ask you if there's, if there's some, someone, something, you know, whether it's like a book or an inspirational artist, or maybe a group of, of artists that you think you would like to recommend to people to take, to take, uh, to take to heart, to maybe observe more closely and maybe point them to how they could look at it through your eyes in order to benefit from, from whatever it is that you choose. Big source of inspiration right now. I, it was a clumsy way of saying it, but big source of inspiration for you right now. Who are you thinking about? Who do you find uh, drives your, your work forward and so that you can point us to look more at? Well, I think I already mentioned it, but but for me, uh, it's actors. It's the it's the theater. It's the it's the idea that um, you know I'm not so big on on the technical stuff. Uh, so if somebody says to me, you know, what 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 is the key? The technique is is the toolbox. It's the, you you practice to be good enough to not worry about how good you are, uh, so that you can you can move on to other things. Um, and I think you know, look, I really I should worry more about how good I am and, and, and do that. But I don't, I don't, I don't care. Uh, you know, I'm doing okay. And, and so I don't have to worry about it, but I'd rather focus more on the acting, on the, on the theater, on the sets. Um, you know, when I do bigger pieces, not just my little ones, I like to build huge elaborate sets. Uh, and that's what I call them. I call them, I actually call them sets. Um, and because that's all influenced by the theater and the stage. And so I think that the one thing that I try to tell my students and younger artists is that there's more to art than knowing what you're doing. 
you know, you can read the books on anatomy, you can study, you can, t- you can watch all the videos on YouTube, but read a book. Read a book that's not about art. Read a, read, just read a book. Uh, read Dickens, read Melville, read the classics, read Know Your Shakespeare. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I have uh, used Shakespeare. I, I did mask paintings. There, there, there were five of them. It was a, it's a tragedy. It's all based on, on Shakespeare. Uh, and so, you know, I think that these things are being lost especially being lost, and this is a whole other topic, in ateliers. Whereas when you go to an art school, you still have to take your math, you still have to take your science, you have to take your literature. I learned as much from my literature teachers in art school than I did as from my painting teachers. Um, but when you're in an atelier and you're sitting there for three days doing this with a pencil, trying to draw a cast of an ear, you're not reading a book. You're not, you're not reading Crime and Punishment. You're not reading War and Peace. Uh, and that element of an artist's education is, is going to be missing. Uh, from the atelier environment. Love it. Love it. Okay. I think, I think we opened a window for the next conversation about the atelier. <laughs> Thoughts on the atelier. Clinton, do you want to let people know where they can find you? Uh, well, uh, my name, Clinton Hobart. Thankfully, I'm the only one except for this scientist in New Mexico I have to get rid of. Um, but other than that, you just Clinton Hobart on a Google search. will come up my website and my Instagram. And, you know, I've got the, uh, yeah, the uh, big cartel shop to buy my work and uh, and Etsy, uh, but the prices are higher on Etsy because their fees are worse than the mob. Um, and uh, and then uh, what else have we got? Oh, Patreon. Uh, so you can you know, and I'm doing. I've been doing. So I did my first live stream. So if you want to watch me paint live, uh, you can just give me a dollar a month, twelve dollars a year, and you get a video a month for for just doing that. And so that's um, you know everything's on. You know we can't leave the house. So and uh, everything's digital. Everything is digital. We can't leave the house and everybody should go and follow Clinton on all his platforms because there's, there's really, your work is really awesome. And I'm, I'm a huge fan. And thank Thank you you. so much for taking the time for, uh, for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it grow, please take a moment to subscribe, rate it highly and share it with a friend. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show and have access to exclusive content, please consider signing up as a patron at patreon.com slash kengoshen. For online lessons, please visit kengoshen.com slash lessons. Thanks again and see you next time.